Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. So thankful that you're here this morning. I rarely, if ever, do this. But I want to encourage you to be at City Church next Sunday morning. As was just mentioned in the video, we take up what's called the Big Give. And we do that in order to support different ministries, local as well as overseas. We are going to have one of the ministries that we support that will be here next Sunday morning, and the ministry is called Beauty for Ashes. It is a teen challenge ministry that takes in women who are drug addicts and have children. There's only a few of these centers in the United States. Those women will be here to share their faith story with us. So I want to encourage you that if you know someone who has a substance abuse issue or someone that they love that does, I want to really encourage you to invite them to come to City with you. I know that the stories that you hear are stories that will grip your heart. So again, that's just a quick commercial for next Sunday morning. And I rarely, if ever, do that, but my roommate in college is the director of the program, and his wife is actually the executive director of that specific house called Beauty for Ashes. So I want to encourage you to be here next Sunday morning. Now, this morning is the final sermon in a series entitled Growth on Purpose. I want to thank my son Peter for preaching last Sunday. He did an okay job <laughs> at best. Too many people as they exited city last week said, you better watch out, Pete, your job is in jeopardy. And uh, I know that uh, God will defend <laughs> my calling. But this morning, I want us to very quickly just kind of recap some of the things that we've talked about throughout this sermon series that again has been titled Growth on Purpose. One of them is this, first15.org. If you have not yet gone onto the website, first15.org, and signed up for the daily email or downloaded the app that will bring you a daily devotional, I want to encourage you to do that. Also, another thing that I want to talk about very clearly and specifically is Growth Track. Growth Track is a three-week process, a three-step process that we are encouraging everyone who's involved with City to go through. It always begins on the first Sunday of the month and goes for the next three weeks. But Growth Track is something that we've put in place to help you to grow on purpose, to mature, to understand more about City, more about your faith, as well as understanding how God has uniquely made you. We've done all of these things because the mission and vision of city is simple. Follow Jesus, serve others. The reason why we exist as a church is calling people to follow Jesus and to serve others. And we do this because as a church, we are biblically based, relationally driven, and spirit-led. Biblically based means that all of our sermons are taken from Scripture, and we believe that the Bible brings to us the reality of who God truly is and how he relates to us and how we're able to relate to him. 
That's biblically based. Next is relationally driven. Jesus teaches us and the scriptures teach us the relationship is the number one priority of life. Our relationship with God and our relationships with people. And this is one of the key reasons why we have life groups here at City. And we encourage everyone to be involved with a life group. And we'll start a new semester of that in January. I'm sorry, December moving into January. But we would like for you to understand the importance of being relationally driven. And last, definitely not least, is spirit-led. Spirit-led means this, that God has sent his spirit into this world and dwelling in our hearts so that what we learn in Scripture and what we deal with relationally, the power of the Holy Spirit is there to help us live out God's best for us. So with that, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with the idea that as we move towards the main topic, I want to begin with thanksgiving. I don't know if you realize this, but next year will be the 400th anniversary of the original Thanksgiving meal. Next year's Thanksgiving will be the 400th anniversary of the original Thanksgiving meal. How many of you love Thanksgiving meals? How many of you, your turkey was a little dry? You know, there's an old saying where I was raised, if the turkey is dry, it means it died angry. <laughs> I want to say this. In our home this year, I believe I've had the best Thanksgiving meal I've ever had. My wife, Franny, cooked it. Not only did she cook everything well, she actually cooked some recipes that my mother had given to her. And since my mother's not here, I want to say this. I no longer need my mom to cook those meals. She is not necessary for that anymore. But the meal was amazing, and we sat around with our family, and the night before, we kind of had a pre-Thanksgiving get-together with two families that we know and love, and we've been journeying through what life with for many, many years. We kind of had this ad hoc thing when we got together to say what we were thankful for, and it had to be impromptu. And so one person said they're thankful for a water heater. How many of you are thankful for hot showers? Someone else said that they are thankful for a calculator because they're an engineering student on grounds at UVA. And they're so grateful for a calculator. But people went around and we just kind of shared what we were thankful for. But if you would recall, the original Thanksgiving was a time where people believed that God was directing them and guiding them and protecting them. And they came to this country to do life differently. And they gathered 399 years ago to thank God for his provision, protection, and direction, and to give thanks to him for the guidance of their lives. You know what was fascinating to me is that of all the Thanksgiving expressions that I was a part of, and it's my own fault, none of us stopped to give the history of Thanksgiving. None of us. 
As a matter of fact, the only time I heard about the Thanksgiving of Thanksgiving or the history of Thanksgiving was through Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving. What a profound movie that is. I could take it for about 10 minutes and then I turned it off. But in all of that, there's this meal that has become very special to me and to my family. Not just mine, but for a lot of people, and it commemorates something that happened 399 years ago. But what I want to talk about this morning when we talk about growth on purpose is I want us to talk about communion. Communion wasn't really regularly scheduled for this morning, but as I was praying about and thinking about the final sermon in this series entitled Growth on Purpose, I felt like God impressed on my heart that we're supposed to take communion. And this morning we're going to celebrate a meal that is 3,500 years old. And we're going to celebrate it here at the Martin Luther King Performing Arts Center, as we have done probably hundreds of times over the last multiple years. But I want to say this at the outset. When we take this meal, we are joining with billions of people who have celebrated this meal over 3,500 years. And where we need to begin to understand this meal is we must begin with a guy named Moses. Now, just so you know, his name is not Charlton Heston. It is truthfully Moses. Now, the Bible uploads to us this incredible story, which I will say to you is the most repeated story of any people group anywhere, exponentially greater. This story has been told and retold and celebrated more than any other story of the human race. And it's the story that begins with Moses. I know some of us that attend City, you've never read the Bible and you're just kind of peering over the wall of faith. And some of us have journeyed with God for decades. But I want to briefly recount to us the story because it moves us towards the Lord's Supper, towards communion. Moses was born to Jewish parents. His parents were in slavery. They were in bondage to the Egyptian empire. Because God was blessing the Israelite people even in bondage. Pharaoh looked down and realized that this Israelite people group was growing and he became fearful and so he sent out a decree or an edict that said that every male child that was born must be killed. But Moses' parents defied the king's decree The Bible says they saw he was a beautiful child and they determined that by faith they would keep him alive. And what their faith looked like was hiding him as long as they could. But then by faith they made a reed boat and they stuck that tiny little infant baby into that reed boat and sent him adrift in the river and he floated downstream to where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. When she saw the child, she picked him up and she took him home and she raised him as her own. Not only did she raise Moses as her own, but she also needed a wet nurse and someone that would help her raise him. And Moses' mother, through a little bit of conniving of family members and God's divine hand, Moses' mother becomes the one that helps to raise him in Pharaoh's home. It's through her that he would have learned the stories of the Israelite God. 
that he would have learned about the one God that you are to worship instead of the multiple gods of the Egyptian empire. And the Bible tells us that Moses, one day as he's an adult, observes an Egyptian beating up a Jew. And he intervenes, but when he intervenes, he kills the Egyptian, and he thinks no one has seen him. But the next day, he goes to walk through the people, and someone says, hey, there's the guy that killed the Egyptian. And Moses runs for his life, and for decades, he lives in the desert as a shepherd. And one day, while he's tending his sheep, he notices a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And so he goes over to the bush. And when he does, the God of Israel speaks to him. And the God of all of Israel announces to Moses that he would become the one that would set his people free. Moses gives a lot of excuses, much like all of us do when we feel God calling us to do something that is beyond our natural capabilities. But God says, no, Moses, you're it. And Moses exits the desert, and he goes back to the Pharaoh's household that he knows well, and he begins to speak to Pharaoh about now it's time to let the Israelite people go. But if you've ever read the story, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and so God sends a series of plagues. But the last plague is a brutal one. And the last plague that is sent is this one. God sends the final plague, and here's Moses speaking for God to God's people, and here's what he says. This is what the Lord says about midnight. I, meaning God, will go throughout, go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. God is moving with the final judgment, with the final plague. And there's a fascinating verse that I had never really noticed before, but I felt like it was worth mentioning. And here's what God says right after he announces his judgment in Exodus 11. God says this, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, when God's judgment comes and God's death angel moves, what's going to end up happening is there will be utter and total peace and quiet just for the Israelite people. But there will be absolute chaos for everyone else. Well, have you ever had a neighbor's dog bark all night long? I have. I was one of those neighbors that actually called the county police after four nights. I honestly couldn't take it anymore. We had little children and the dog next door was barking and barking and this county cop showed up at like three in the morning and we went to find that thing. And this is a true story. As soon as the police officer pulled up outside my house, the dog quit barking. <laughs> and we walked up and down the neighborhood and I know that guy thought I was totally weird. But here's what's amazing. The night of God's judgment, the Bible says that there was wailing and crying in Egypt like no one had ever heard before or since. But not even a dog barked among those who were part 
of the Israelite people. Well, eventually Pharaoh lets the Israelite people go. Now, here's what's amazing. Before Pharaoh lets the Israelite people go, God comes to Moses in chapter 12 of Exodus and for the first 20 verses says to Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to prepare what's called a Passover meal. Now, God hasn't delivered Israel yet. And yet God shows up to Moses and said, tell every household you're supposed to go out into the field, get an unblemished lamb, and you're supposed to get unleavened bread. By the way, leaven in the Jewish faith stands for sin. Because you're going to rush and you're going to have to hurry, utilize unleavened bread, go get an unblemished lamb, don't even take the innards out of the lamb, just put it right on the fire and roast it, and you're supposed to eat the lamb and eat the unleavened bread. And what else is so amazing to me is this is that God announces this to Moses. And the people of Israel go out and they prepare this meal. Now, what I want us to do is read very quickly what God has done in and through Moses. And here's what the Bible teaches us. I want you to read it on the large screen. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said, Go at once, select the animals for your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood of the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frames. And none of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So what we discover here is this, is that God announces that the way from his judgment is through the blood of an unblemished lamb. And the book of Leviticus gives us an understanding of why. So God announces to Israel in his law, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so God comes to Israel and says, take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the door frame, and the death angel will pass over you. But not only does God say that, but I want you to notice on the big screens what God says next. He says this to his people. He says, obey these instructions. In other words, prepare this meal. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe the ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice, the Lord, who passed, on the, who passed over the houses of the Israelites into Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. Now here's what's amazing. As God says to the Israelite people, 
before he ever delivers them. When you move forward and when you enter the promised land, you're going to repeat this meal every single year. And if you read Exodus 12, you'll discover there is a certain day every year where every Jewish person is to gather together and celebrate a meal that remembers the blood of the lamb and the unleavened bread. And they're to do that every single year. Now, here's what's amazing. God mandates that before he ever delivers his people. He says, go out into your field and make this meal. And oh, by the way, Israel, you will repeat this meal every single year till the end of time. And here's what struck me. The first Passover meal is eaten as a reminder of what God has done, but also in anticipation of what God will do. So the first Passover meal was a remembrance of what God had done, but it was also in faith and anticipation of what God would do to completely deliver Israel. And the Scripture tells us that that's exactly what the Israelites did. They exit that first Passover meal, and God does exactly what he promises. And for the next 40 years, the Israelites move throughout the wilderness. And as they do every year on that year, they celebrate God delivering them into the promised land. Then finally he does. And for 3,500 years, Jewish people have gathered every year at the command of God to remember the story about what God has done, but also believing that there's this God that will still and continually set his people free. Now, now we move to the Newer Testament. And as we move to the Newer Testament, just know this, that what we're getting ready to read is written by a Jewish Pharisee who's become a follower of Jesus. And so what I would like for us to do now is read the familiar verses that we always read every single time before we take communion. It is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 28. Would you please read with me? Here's what the scripture says. Paul writes, this Jewish man who has had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, here's what he writes. He writes, for I received from the Lord, meaning Jesus, what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't that fascinating? The Apostle Paul allowances to us that this meal that has been the same for 1,500 years, there's 1,500 years between Moses and Jesus. 
That meal that has been eaten the exact same way, suddenly the meal is no longer about a lamb that was slaughtered. It's now about Jesus, the Lamb of God who has come into the world to take away the sins of the entire world. And suddenly this ancient feast is now no longer focused on Moses and what God did back then. It's now focused on Jesus and what God has done through Christ for us. Now, I want you to notice something of the way it's phrased. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the death of Christ, until he returns. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it absolutely incredible? When you think about the idea that Jesus Christ is now the center of this meal, but the Apostle Paul says this, when we take it together this morning, we're not just looking backward as what God has done, but we're also looking into the future and excited about what God will do through Christ. So know this, this Passover communion meal is eaten as a reminder of what Christ has done, but also with faith and in anticipation of what Christ will do. So this morning when we take communion together, in order for us to be a group of people that are honestly growing on purpose in our faith, I want us to clearly understand that God is inviting you and inviting me to participate in a meal that is 3,500 years old. It's the central story of the Jewish faith that has now turned its attention toward Jesus as Christ has fulfilled the Older Testament prophets and promises. That when I hold the cup and I hold the bread, that I do it with a clear understanding that Exodus was the central story of the Jewish faith, and now in Christ, he has fulfilled that story. And God invites you and me to eat at that table. Now, in front of me, I have this cut glass bowl. This bowl is absolutely beautiful. And I learned this year, after dating my wife for five years and being married to her for 28 years, that this bowl was one of the first purchases her grandmother, for those of you who've never met her, you never will, her name was Nanny Pachoni. What a great name, Nanny Pachoni. And this was the first gift she ever bought herself after she was first married. Well, inside of this bowl was the recipe that my mother had sent to my wife. And it's this amazing kind of jello salad. I think Jesus would eat jello salad, my opinion. Utterly amazing. And it was placed inside the bowl. And as my wife went to pass this to the family, here's what she said. She said, this bowl was the bowl of your great-grandmother, Nanny Pachoni. This was the first thing she bought herself when she was first married, and she bought it to put on a table to put fruit in it. And inside that bowl is the recipe that dad's mom, meaning me, gave to her, and she's put it inside this bowl. 
And Fran's explaining all of this, and she's so excited. And I'm thinking, I'm hungry. I just want to eat. I mean, that's all well and good, but just give me what's in the bowl. But you know what was interesting? When I picked up the bowl and went to scoop that stuff out of there that's so delicious, it kind of struck me that the bowl means a lot to my wife. It's got history to it. She used to kneel in prayer next to her grandmother, Pachoni. As her grandmother said the rosary, my wife would sit next to her and kneel down. She talks about being a little girl and kneeling next to Nanny Pachoni and looking at her black buckled shoes and wondering how much longer her grandmother could possibly pray the rosary. It just went on and on. And Nanny Pachoni gave her a little doll that she got to hold when she knelt down to pray with her. And as I held that bowl, it kind of had a new meaning to me. It meant something different. My goal is this, is that when you and I take communion in just a few moments, that it will have a new meaning to us too, if not a deeper one. You see, God, by his grace, as we put feet to our faith, God calls us to sit at a table and to partake of a meal that speaks of him as the God that sets his people free from slavery and bondage. That if you're here this morning and you find that in your own life you're enslaved by something, something's got its hold on you and you've been unable to break free, this is the God that will set you free. This is the God. So I want to encourage you Would you with me at this time take out the emblems? If you have not been served, I want you to raise your hand signifying that you have not been served. If you need gluten-free bread, we actually have that back on the tables because some people have been requesting that. If you would like gluten-free, if you could just as we get ready to stand in just a moment, you could slip to the back. Our servers are prepared to give that to you from the back tables. But my prayer this morning is that as we put feet to our faith, that we would be a group of people that would approach this table with a new sense, not just of the history, but of God being involved in it. To me, it is so similar to this bowl. For years, this bowl was nothing but something my wife put stuff in. Now it's got new meaning to me. It was her grandmother's. It was the great-grandmother of my children. She was the one that called Fran to be a person of prayer. As a little girl to kneel down next to her and to pray the prayers. As we come to the table this morning... I'm asking that you and I would join in. That we would join in with those who have eaten this meal for 3,500 years. But for the past 2,000 years, the focus for many has been on Jesus. Because you see, as we break this bread and we drink this cup, 
We do so thanking Jesus, but we also do so in faith and anticipation of the completed work of Christ, where when he returns, he will make all things as they always should have been. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ will create for us a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more dysfunction, no more brokenness. That in him we can look forward and as stable as the cup and the bread is in our hands, so is our faith in Jesus. That as Paul says, when he returns, we will then be ultimately free as all of creation will be freed up from the curse of sin. So I want to invite you, have all been served, that would like to be served. We invite any of you who are here this morning to take communion with us. But what we're going to do now is we're going to stand together in God's presence. And as we stand together, I'm going to invite you to take the Lord's Supper the Passover meal, communion with me. Here's what the Bible teaches us, and we've already read it from 1 Corinthians 11. Here the Apostle Paul, a Jewish Pharisee, brings to us the truth of this meal, a meal that he had taken as a Jewish man, but now he takes with a new perspective as a follower of Jesus. As we gather at this table that has been celebrated for 3,500 years, what we do now is we take the bread and we hold the bread up before the Lord. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are that bread, the unleavened bread that was broken for us that sinless body that became the Lamb of God. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood for me and for the brokenness of your body that gives me new life. And giving thanks, let's put feet to our faith and let's partake together. Apostle Paul goes on to write to us that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim in faith that when Jesus returns, he will set all of creation free from the slavery and bondage to the curse of sin. Jesus, thank you for your shed blood that not only covers our sin, but removes it forever. So Jesus, thank you for inviting us to partake in this meal that points to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink together. I'm going to ask 
that you would close your eyes and take a few moments to worship Jesus. We're going to be worshiping to this song 10,000 Reasons. And I would like for you, along with me, to focus on Christ. And let's give him worship. Let's give him thanks. Let's purposefully position our hearts towards Christ. Giving him thanks for what he's done, but also giving him thanks and celebrating this meal in faithful anticipation of what is to come.